unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And they which were about him saw what would follow. They said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. That far we read the word of God, but what we see from the last part of this section we read is that the Lord answered Jesus' prayer. It was not the Lord's will that this cup pass from him. We take our instruction this morning also from Lord's Day 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Which is the third petition? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may renounce our own will. And without murmuring, obey thy will, which is only good. That so everyone may attend to and perform the duties of his station and calling, as willingly and faithfully as the angels do in heaven. I think, beloved, that I could summarize the whole of the petition and the Heidelberg Catechism in this one statement. You and I don't get to choose how our life will be. Somebody else has determined it for us. And we can be glad of that because His way and His will are better. That's this catechism and this petition in a nutshell. But as we expand on that, let's look first of all in the introduction to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And notice three things about Christ in relation to the will of God. The first is that He taught the blessedness of the doing of God's will. This was part of his ministry on earth. Not only that he did the Lord's will, but he taught the blessedness of it. To 
the Jews who thought that they were saved because they were doing what the Pharisees told them to, he said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And again, another time, when people said to him, your brothers and your mother are out there looking for you, he said, behold, my brothers and my mothers, who are they? Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, he taught that the doing of the will of the Father is above all things most important. And in doing it, we find happiness and joy. The second place Jesus set himself before us in the gospel accounts as the example of one who did the Father's will. When the disciples wondered whether he would have enough uh, food, he was working so hard, they wondered if he had food and should we go get you some food. He said, my meat is to do the will of my Father which is in heaven. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Notice not just his commitment to doing the will of the Father, but his faithfulness to finish the work. That was our Lord Jesus Christ in his example. Likewise in John 6 verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now evidently the will of God for Jesus and the work that Jesus was to do was of a distinctive character far different from the work you and I are called to do in the service of God. For Jesus is the only mediator and the only Savior. But still, why are you here today on earth? To do whatever the Lord intends to accomplish in and through you and me. And that becomes our meat, our food, more important even than the eating of food and the drinking of water or wine is the serving of our Father. What single-mindedness our Lord had. He taught it was blessed to do the Father's will. He set forth himself as the example of one who would do the Father's will. And now we see in our passage that we read and in the Lord's day before us that he prayed the Father's will be done. This is striking. Not that you and I must be taught to pray that the Father's will be done, but that our Lord Jesus Christ himself had to pray this. For was not he God? Was not he perfect? Was not he incapable of sin? Was not the Father's will his own will inasmuch as he in his person was the Son of God? Why must Jesus Christ pray that the Father's will be done? And the answer from a theological or a doctrinal viewpoint is that Jesus had two wills. He had a divine will 
inasmuch as he had a divine nature, and he had a human will inasmuch as he had a human nature. Now at no point did his divine will and his human will work or fight against each other. At every point in his life, he subjected his own human will to the will of his Father. But that's precisely what he's asking for grace to do and for power to do in this text. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will. Not my human will. Not my human will which shirks back at the cross and the wrath of God that I must endure on the cross, not my human will that asks now, is there a way to save, to save all whom thou hast given me without the death of the cross? And we see in his prayer and in his rising from his prayer stance and preparing to go to the death of the cross, an obedience, a submission to the Father's will and a readiness to do it. So he teaches us to seek the doing of the Father's will and to pray for grace. And that's the fifth petition to which I call your attention, the third petition rather, to which I call your attention under the theme, praying that Father's will be done. First of all, acknowledging Father's will is good. Secondly, seeking grace to renounce our will. And thirdly, desiring power to serve God faithfully. Our God has a will. We're going to consider that in a little while. There's a concept, that's an idea that needs fleshing out. And as we flesh out this idea, we're going to behold again the majesty and the awe of our God. In distinction from any other so-called God and any other idol. Our God has a will. First of all, then, that will regards something. That will has content to it. What is the will of God? Well, we classify it into different classifications, and we can do so on the basis of uh, scriptural data. But what it comes down to is that the will of God regards every single thing that happens in time and history, past, present, and future, by men and angels not only, but by ants and by invisible to the naked eye, microbes and microorganisms, the will of God governs all. We can speak of the will of his providence. That is his will, according to which he determines every event in time and history, and how each event relates to each other and serves the other, the rise and the fall of nations, for instance. We can speak of his will of predestination. His will regarding where we spend eternity to come, whether in heaven or in hell. That would be the will of God's decree, both as regards providence and, and as regards predestination. A will that you and I don't in any way help him carry out. But we recognize he has this will, that will is sovereign, it's unchanging, as we'll see today, it's good, and we must submit to and bow before it. Then, we can speak of what's called his revealed will, his law. 
And now we're coming to an aspect of His will that directly bears on my conduct, not just my life and the circumstances of my life, which were beyond my control, but my conduct. And He says to us in His law, You are my children. I have redeemed you. I have prepared and am preparing heaven for you. And this is how you must and will live. Consciously, deliberately, from your heart, willingly and faithfully, you will seek the doing of my law. And that law is not just the law of the Ten Commandments. That comes to each one of us and says, in whatever circumstance of life you find yourself, love God and love your neighbor. But there is more specifically a law, the Catechism alludes to this, a calling that relates to the station we have in life. And now I'm bringing together both the will of God's decree, His his providence whereby He determines every aspect of my life, and the will of His command. For He puts me, He puts you in a certain circumstance of life. One is a wife, one is a husband, one is a parent, one is a child, etc. And He says, in that station, there's a calling Love God and love your neighbor generally, of course, but very specifically do so in this way, in this circumstance of your life. And the Bible somewhere sets forth what that calling is. He has a will, and I've explained what that will is as regards its content, but we have to come to the focal point of it. Whether it's the will of his providence, whether it's the decree of election and predestination, whether it's His law as He makes it known to us, always His will has this as its goal, the glory of His name in the saving of sinners. And at every moment in the life of elect sinners, redeemed by the blood of Christ, preparing us for heaven. It might be that His will for me is one of trial, that I endure pain, that there's suffering. And yet He says to me, serve me in that, for in this way I'm preparing you for heaven. Now, having spoken of the content of His will, given substance to the idea of what He wills, there's something else we need to do when we speak of a will of God, and that is to call attention to the activity of His willing. This will is not just a predetermination, a very objective, almost maybe like an engineer sitting in an office saying, the bridge is going to have to be, have this, it's going to have to have this, it's going to have to have this, it's going to have to have this. And when it has all those things, it will serve a purpose. That's not God. He is actively willing these things. And what I mean is that this is His desire. It's not just His foreknowledge or foreawareness of how things ought to go. This is His desire, His good pleasure. It pleases Him in His heart. And that our God wills that He has such an activity sets Him apart from every idol God and mischaracterization about the one true God. 
For the idol God doesn't will at all. He not only has no hands, no feet, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, but he therefore has no mind. And they who serve the idol God do so in vain because the thing doesn't really exist other than in an outward form. He has no will that they serve. He has no will that they violate. They have no sin in reference to or in regard to that idol thing. And therefore the service of the idol is entirely in vain. But then that this God has a will, the one true God, also distinguishes him from all misrepresentations of him. And there are many such today. That although he has a will, he leaves it up to you to decide whether and insofar as you will serve him or not. That is the idea of the free will of man. A will of man that's sovereign or more powerful than God's. That's a misrepresentation of God's will. That although he has a will, his will is really to do you good, and that's what he wants, but there is also a Satan who's as powerful as he, and God and Satan are sort of at war with each other all the time, and when bad things happen in your life, it wasn't God who wanted them. That's a mischaracterization of his will. The God of whom we speak, the God who wills, is a sovereign God whose will is sovereign. An intelligent and wise God whose will is intelligent and wise. A God who is able to accomplish all that he desires to do. And now that God willed. It wasn't just in his plan and counsel objectively. It was in his heart. He willed to deliver you and me from the bondage of sin and death and from the guilt of sin and to adopt us in Jesus Christ to be his children and to renew us again by the Spirit of Christ to be his living children and says to you and to me, it's because I love you that I'm going to teach you to seek my will. And he works in you and me to come to him with a prayer on our lips. Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very prayer, an act of worship, and a confession of the glory and majesty of the one true God. And now as our Lord himself prayed, as is set forth both in Luke and in the other gospel accounts, he teaches us something, which also the Heidelberg Catechism drives home, that we are to view the will of God as only good. Only good. When there's an earthquake a war, a storm, and great devastation. Some say, clearly God's will is not sovereign. For if it were sovereign, these bad things would not happen. Others say, clearly God's will is not good. 
For if God's will were good, these things would not happen. You say, and I say, God's will is good, and it is sovereign, and therefore these things happened. And if you ever go at work, to work someday, after some great calamity, and discuss this concept with others at work, or if any of you young people in college will bring it up with professors or with fellow students in college, you'll quickly find that many don't share your perspective. Because at bottom, two things. At bottom, they deny the sovereignty of the will of God, even if they won't admit it, And secondly, at bottom, they insist that if the will of God is good, He will do me what I think to be good all the days of my life. If the will of God is good, then I will be happy, I will be full, I will be healthy, I will be without pain, and as soon as I'm not happy, there must be a problem with God's will. That is the mentality of humanity. You and I are swayed by that sometimes, if it isn't with regard to some of these great calamities that happen to others in time in history. It might be that when I find myself in a stage of life that's not at all pleasant, when there are trials in my marriage or my family life, when my job is not what I want it to be, that I come to God and say, God, is not thy will good? And if thy will is good, then why must I suffer? And so we murmur and complain. There's a reason why our fathers, in writing the catechism, said that without murmuring, we obey thy will, which is only good. So we come to God in prayer and have to do a couple of things at this point in our own prayer life. In the first place, we have to repent. But every time we so much as thought that God owed us better and that God is not fair for giving us the trials and troubles He gives. In the second place, before even beginning a petition, let us say to Him up front that His will is only Good. It's not mostly good, but there's some bad in it. It's not a matter of him saying he did the best he could with regard to our life, and there are some things that are beyond his control, so he's sorry if there's trouble in our life. It is a matter of saying to him that we recognize and understand that he who loves us in Jesus Christ as our Father has determined every aspect of our life to sanctify us and prepare us for heaven. My trials are good. That mustn't just be something that we have in our head, theologically understood. It has to be something we have in our heart and we're willing to come to God and say it to His face. Remember that prayer is not only supplication. The Lord's Prayer is primarily supplication. We're learning how to bring petitions and requests to God. But remember that prayer is also, as the doxology will remind us, praise 
and adoration. And let us do that with regard to acknowledging the goodwill of God. Our Savior Himself sets the example here. For He was at a temptation, a moment in His life greater than any other. I say temptation. That is, Satan again was holding before the Jesus Christ that there was another way to become great than the way of the death of the cross. And that way to become great, not great in the eyes of God. Not so that Jesus could have said, my meat is to do my Father's will. But great in the eyes of men and great in the eyes of Satan. The way is to turn his back on the cross. Go back to the Jews and tell them I was wrong when I refused to serve you bread or when I did give you bread and you wanted to make me king and I said, no, I'm not that kind of Savior. I was wrong. I'll be that kind of Savior. I will heal you from all your infirmities. I will rain bread from heaven for you every day and then you can be great. That's the temptation that Satan is bringing before Jesus Christ. And it isn't with a view to serving Satan, ultimately, that Jesus makes the prayer that he makes, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. But it's because he would serve his Father. And yet the horror of what he was about to do on the cross filled his soul with agony. And what did he say? Father, the problem here is your will? Your will is bad? No. Father, if you just change your mind? No. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Having confessed the good will of God, then you and I come to God in prayer seeking grace to renounce our own will. In the first point, I set forth that God has a will. Now let's do justice to the fact that you and I have a will also. It's inherent in being a human. Inherent in being a rational, moral creature. That is, a human or an angel that we have a will. Our will is something more than the instinct of an animal. Our will is something more than a dog's desire to please its master. The will that we have, which we need grace to renounce, is a will that has been part of us because we are human body and soul. Adam himself was created with a mind and a soul and a body, and embedded in all that was the capacity to will and to choose. In other words, that we have a will is not really the problem. The character of our will as a consequence of sin is the problem. In the first place, what sets our will apart from God's is that our will is limited because we are limited and finite. We're a creature. We're a human. I have a will. I have a will about how my life goes. I have a will about how all those close to me in my life act. My wife and my sons. 
I have a will about how people who I work with uh, act in relation to me. But you see, even though my will extends outside of myself, it's still so limited. You have a will regarding some person who lives at such and such an address, off in Scotland. You don't even know the person. Your will does not regard them. The Lord's does. My will is so finite, so limited. So even if it were sinless, it isn't. But even if it were, I would need to pray, Thy will be done. Because I can't see the big picture. But in the second place, what sets my will apart from God's is that sin, and I'm going to use a rather weak word, affects our will. And by using the weak word, I don't mean to be weak doctrinally. Let's have it out. My will, apart from the grace of God, is in bondage and enslaved to sin. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, renewing and regenerating me, my will is thoroughly corrupt. God's is only good, mine is only bad. But now I come to God in prayer, not as a totally unregenerated unbeliever, but as one who calls Him Father. As one who knows His love for me. As one whose will has been renewed by the Spirit of God. And I still must confess that though now my will is no longer totally depraved and completely unable to serve Him, that sin still affects my will. And because of that, I am prone to seek the doing of my will. The coming of my kingdom, the hallowing of my name. I am prone to say that I should have some say in how the future of my life goes. I am prone to say that I should have some say on whether the law of God governs my life or not. I want my will to be done. It is that expression of sin in even the lives of God's children, let alone those who are not God's children, that leads us sometimes to plot and connive and manipulate to get our way. That leads us sometimes to have a pity party or a temper tantrum because I didn't get what I wanted. It comes naturally in us. And then among humans are some who are so bent on getting their way that they learn how to play with your mind or play on your emotions in order to get their way. And so I have a word for two kinds of people now, on the basis of what I've been saying so far. 
the word in the first place to one who has a strong will, but whose strong will is not bent in the service of our Lord and Master, but in the doing of our own will and forcing others to do our will, to them is the calling to repent. And to stop insisting that your, my will be done by others at all costs, and to submit to the will of Jehovah God. And then the word to those who hear such people and are pressured to serve them is, you can't serve two masters. You either serve that human in the carrying out of his will at the expense of serving your Lord Jesus Christ, or you serve your Lord Jesus Christ and say to that human, not your will. Not my will and not your will, but God's will. But that takes grace. And so the prayer is a prayer for grace. Grant that we and all men may renounce our own will. Is that really part of your prayer then as you come to God? We don't always see in what way our will is bad, but we're going to acknowledge the very real possibility, probability, that at some point, our will being limited, finite human, but also affected and influenced by sin, is not good. Is that your prayer, young people? Maybe you want a spouse. You've prayed for one. Or maybe it's not just a spouse generally. You have your eye on a certain one. And that's the one you want. And you bring this prayer to God. Thy will. Because He knows better than do you or I. The kind of spouse we need for the rest of our life. Maybe we have that with regard to our job. Why can't God so govern my life that whatever problems my job has improve by tomorrow? Why can't He lead me very quickly, easily, and seamlessly to another job or see to it that whatever people at my job are troubling me are removed from their position and no longer can trouble me? Grant that we and all men may renounce our own will. The petition is urgent. And the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ underscores it. It was urgent on the one hand because He needed the answer immediately. If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will. He needed the answer immediately. The death of the cross was immediately upon Him. And by the end of the passage we read, or the the part of this chapter that we read, Judas and his band was there to arrest Jesus, and off he would go to be tried and brought to the death of the cross. But besides, the petition is urgent, because my sinful nature will continue to assert and manifest itself, and try to convince God that His will ought to align with mine rather than that I seek grace that my will aligns with His. Thy will, 
be done. As I come to God with this part of the prayer on my lips, as a child of God now, I realize another doctrinal reality. His will is done. When I fight against His will, when I try to see to it that my will is carried out, it isn't that he's in a power struggle. It isn't that he's trying the best to do his will and I'm interfering with it. But in the end he says to me, my son, my daughter, everything you do is subject to my will. I'm not defending, of course, now any sins that we commit and saying that they're justified in light of the law of God. That's not the point. With regard to the sovereign determination of God for every event that happens in my life, God says, my will is done. You need grace to renounce your will because my will is being done. Then we come to God in prayer, thoroughly desiring power to serve God faithfully, having done as much justice as we can to the will of God's decree and His sovereign control over our lives. We'll come more to the matter of His law and the duties that He gives us in our station of life. And we stand before Him saying, give me grace to do them willingly and faithfully. Here we're told in our catechism, the how. And once again, Jesus Christ illustrates the how in the work that he did in the prayer that he prayed on earth. Willingly. To do the will of God willingly is not just to say, all right, I'll do it then. You're bigger than me. I guess I won't get my way, but I'll pout and I'll let you know I'm unhappy about it. It is to put a smile on our face and say, I want to. I want to. To do the will of God faithfully is to do it in every little detail. It is to be sure that we have not swerved from the law of God in any little respect. And that's the calling set before us. The catechism drives home that that calling is to be carried out as willingly and faithfully as the angels do in heaven. Because our Lord himself taught us in the third petition to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But notice that in heaven it's not only the angels who do the will of God faithfully and willingly. It is also the perfected saints And it is also our exalted, glorified Jesus Christ. But we can begin with the elect angels. Those created early in the first day of creation, or in the early in creation week. Those who did not follow Satan in his rebellion and fall into sin. Are ranked in a certain order. 
There is not an angel in a lower rank who goes to God and says, it's about time for a promotion now. I think you made a mistake in putting me lower than that one. You don't do that. There's not an angel that comes to God and says, you gave me the wrong task. That angel is better suited for the task than I am, so would you switch our mandates? They do not roll their eyes when God gives them a command. They do not shrug their shoulders. They do not drag their feet. They do not mutter under their breath. They serve God with joy and gladness, willingly and faithfully, for they understand that they have been elected of grace. Even there, our Belgian confession will say it, that those angels that continue in the state of perfection do so by virtue of God's grace. And he could just as easily have appointed them to fall and to be destroyed with the devils and Satan as he could have to choose them unto glory and blessedness. They therefore serve him willingly, faithfully, and in gratitude. And so do your parents or grandparents or maybe siblings or in some instances children who have gone on to glory before you and me. There is in them now in heaven no murmuring and complaining. But they've been perfectly conformed to the image of God in Jesus Christ in their souls And they serve their Father with joy and gladness. And they understand, being now in heaven, what their trials on earth were preparing them for. More filled with the understanding again, that the Lord could easily have chosen or appointed them to condemnation and to reveal His justice, but instead He appointed them to manifest His mercy. They praise and thank Him. And above them all is our Lord Jesus Christ. Having done the will of his Father while he was on earth, he sits at the right hand of God and carries out the decree, the counsel of God, governing all of time and history, and does so with a heart that is devoted to the service of Jehovah God. When you and I would murmur, complain, shrug our Shoulders roll, our eyes mutter under our breath. Let us both remember the perfect example set by those in heaven and then come to God and pray for grace. For the power by which I will obey and you will obey is not the kind of power that just nudges us in the right direction, gives us mental, logical reasons why we ought to be a little better at obeying. But it's the kind of power that totally transforms and renews us. And therein you find really the heart of the Father's answer to our prayer. As our Heidelberg, rather as our canons of Dort will set forth in the fourth head, heads three and four, and in articles 10 and following. And not only in the work of regeneration, 
but then also in the work of sanctification progressively throughout life, our Father works grace in the hearts of His children in this way. Not only to renew our wills and make them seek His again, but He also rules in us and overpowers our wills so that instead of our saying, I don't want to, but I have to, we say, Father, Thy will be done. By which I mean, I want to. Thy will has become my will. By nature, we want God to conform His will to ours. By grace, He conforms ours to His. See examples of that in the psalmist. In Psalm 119, I'll only read two verses, but there's a number of verses in the psalm that apply. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. That was His will in verse 30. And again in verse 47. And I will delight myself in Thy commandments, which I have loved. Oh yes. The answer of the Father to His children who pray this petition is to conform our will to His and to say, Now I'm happy. I'm not pushing, striving, manipulating, twisting anymore to get my way, thinking that when I get my way, I'll be happy. Now I'm happy. For I seek not mine, but His. To earn that grace for you and for me, to work it in us, Our Savior must go to the death of the cross. He prayed, if thou be willing. And the Father's answer to him was, I am not willing. And the way of your suffering, Jesus Christ, I will accomplish a great salvation for a host of people. And in the way of you, Jesus Christ, showing that your will is conformed to the will of God. The Lord said to him, in essence, I will give your spirit and grace to the hearts of all my children, and they will conform their will to mine by that grace. Let me end where I began. We could summarize this petition and the instruction of the catechism in one brief sentence. I don't get to choose the circumstances of my life nor how I am to act and conduct myself in various circumstances. God is sovereign. He has determined all that, and He has given me His law. And in the keeping of it, I am happy. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, drive home this word to our hearts and souls, and then driving it home, Give us to bring this petition earnestly to Thee, not just out of our heads, but from our hearts. Thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. And give us the joy, the peace, the happiness that only they know who love thy will. For Jesus' sake, amen.